There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today on the show, we are joined by Zach Farenbaugh from The Hunting Public to dive into how he would handle some of the most difficult situations in the deer hunting world. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today we are wrapping up our series of What Would You Do podcasts. Hopefully you've heard the three prior. We've talked to Jeff Sturgis, Michael Hunsucker, and Adam Hayes, and you know the deal. We're going to break down and discuss a series of different hypothetical scenarios. We're going to paint a picture, and we're going to have our guests describe how they would handle this situation what they would do, how they think about it, etc. Our guest today is someone you probably know, hopefully know. He's been on the podcast in the past. He's well known because of his exploits on YouTube. This is Zach Farenbaugh. He is a member of the hunting public team, previously was seen on Midwest Whitetail. Uh, Zach is a phenomenal whitetail hunter, and he's doing it almost all on public land, all on public land these days. And uniquely, Compared to a lot of folks, he's doing it almost all on the ground now. He has really gotten into and perfected a style of hunting in which he's on the ground, still hunting, spot and stalking, occasionally ambushing, but he's doing it not from a tree. He's doing it down at deer eye level, and he's done it geez, at an astounding rate of, of success. This guy knows what he's doing, so... I today want to see how he would handle a set of different situations. And I brought on my buddy and Wired to Hunt host of the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, Tony Peterson, to help me do it. So Tony and I are going to present a bunch of ideas and situations and stories and circumstances to Zach, and we'll see how he handles them. That is it. That's the game plan. This one's really good. We get into some good stuff. Uh, even if you don't hunt from the ground, even if you don't think that's something you want to do, we get into some good general deer hunting knowledge kind of conversations that I think will help anyone out there. Whether you hunt public land or private land, there are some some really good themes here that we touch on. So I'd highly encourage you to give this one a listen. 
in other news, I would just remind you to be following all of our Wired Hunt content because we are pumping it out at double speed these days. We're getting out new articles on the new Wired Hunt website. You can find that at themeateater.com slash wired, W-I-R-E-D, or just Google Wired to Hunt. You'll find it there. We're putting in a lot of work to get these articles out there from great people that really know what they're doing. Tony and I are pushing out our new YouTube videos, so check that out. We've got quick educational videos coming out on the Wired Hunt YouTube channel. Lots going to be coming out on social media here too. Hunting season is kicking off for both Tony and I and Spencer and all the other folks on the Wired Hunt team. It's kicking off for a lot of us in just a matter of weeks, so... It's go time, and I hope you are. Uh, I hope you're as excited as I am because we work all winter, spring, summer to lead up to this point, and uh, and now it's time to cash in on all that uh, investment of time. So here's the opening day coming soon, and with that out of the way, let's get to my chat. Me and Tony talking with Zach Farenbaugh. All right, with me on the line, I've got Zach Farenbaugh. Zach, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I uh, I just was looking back to try to see when it was we talked last on here, and it was, I think, 2018. So almost three years ago. So it's it's definitely good that we're doing this again, and definitely good that we've got you on for this kind of episode because you're kind of wrapping up a series for us, Zach. For the last month okay. or so, we've been doing this series of. What would you do podcasts? And I told you a little bit about this, but the basic gist of it is that we give people a whole series of challenging hypothetical situations. We're going to paint a picture of a hunting scenario, throw you in the middle of it and see how you would handle it, what your thought process would be, why you would do what you do, etc. Um, and then if you can make it out the other side and you're still alive, you win. You get to go on and uh, continue <laughs> on with your day. So uh, that's what we wanted to put you through. Uh, are you up for that? I'm up for it. Let's do it. All right. And I brought my secret weapon with me. It's not just me. Tony Peterson is here to throw the real curveballs. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a pleasure to get to do this with you, Zach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited to hear what what type of situations I get tossed into only the worst, only the worst Zach. <laughs> but, that's good. That's but, good. The true task. The way I like to look at this is it's like a little bit of preseason training, like people in football right now, they're at training camp. They're getting ready for the season. Well, all three of us have our hunting seasons kicking off here in a matter of weeks. So I figure let's, let's mentally go through some of those tough times so that when they actually do arrive in season, we'll be, It'll be a piece of cake. We've already been through it. Hey. Mark already forced me into this one, and I figured it out. I love it. I love like visualizations and you know trying to prep mentally. I love it. I'm, yes, I'm I'm into it. Yes. All right. Well, uh, I think we should just jump into it. No beating around the bush. Let's just get going on these. And the first one is a little different than the rest um, because I'm going to ask you to actually step out of your own usual situation and instead imagine you're in an alternate universe in this alternate universe, Zach, you are not filming for the hunting public. You are not able to hunt for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks a year. Instead, you're working a day job and you got to work every day, all day. It's like 10 hour days. You get home and you have three kids 
and they need you doing stuff with them right when you get home and on the weekends you're slammed with house duties and all that kind of stuff. So instead of being able to take off for a week-long rut hunt or a week-long hunt in September and a week-long here to this state and that state, instead of that, you maybe could get away with two hours on a Saturday morning. And the thing is that you Mm -hmm. are in a meat crisis. Like the season is just opening up. Your freezer is empty. The family needs food like now. And you've got two hours on a Mm -hmm. Saturday morning. So my question to you is this. In that situation, if that was your life and you had two hours Opening Saturday morning, let's say, how exactly would you go about doing that? Like, what would be the specific way you would approach that situation, and and how would that be different than what you do when you're traveling on a week long hunt trying to kill a big buck? Walk me through like the details of what you do in that one, because we always talk about how to kill a big buck. We never talk about how to kill a doe quickly. What would you do then? Sure. I think that if I was in that situation, you know, trying to squeeze, it sounds like, you know, the busy lifestyle um, with not a lot of time to focus on, you know, finding deer, but any chance I got outside of that two hours, you know, maybe on my way home from work, um, if I could swing and just do a little bit of glassing, you know, that's a big thing that I think um, we don't necessarily talk about uh, a lot in our situation. But like something I've done in the past, like when I was in school or just, you know, working a job in between school, like if I only had a little bit of time, I'm trying to spend more time just kind of driving around, trying to figure out what you're doing that way. When you do have that two hours, you're able to just, you know, commit to being in, you know, the right spot. Because obviously if you're on limited time, you want to put the odds in your favor as much as possible. And if you can't get out, um, and put boots on the ground or whatever, uh, hunting, just any little thing that can help just tell you what the deer are doing. So what I would try to do probably in that situation, if it's Saturday morning is when I have the time, maybe I would try to make a loop before work, you know, depending obviously, um, if work starts at, you know, 5am and I gotta work until dark or whatever, it's like, that's going to be more difficult, but, um, just trying to put as much time, you know, glassing or just cruising around places that I have access to would be huge. You know, I think about the, not exactly this situation because, you know, it definitely is an alternate universe because I don't have any kids, but um, (laughs) like when I was in, when I was in college and working in the winter, I would get home from work and would just have like this tiny little window to where I could just drive around, check out the places that I was hunting. And I was able to put a pretty decent pattern on what the deer were doing. That way, when I did get the opportunity over the weekend to get out and hunt, I was able to just go right to where I felt like I had the most confidence, um, you know, and just try to take advantage of that small amount of time. So, you know, that's, that's just, I guess how I would try to create a little bit of extra time. I would just try to go out of my way to just get a tiny little bit. I mean, it may literally be just driving by and checking the, you know, checking the open field or pasture or whatever, just to see if deer are moving through it. And then that's just, you know, helping put me in the game because, you know, you're talking that little amount of time. You definitely want to put all the odds in your favor. Yep. I follow you there for sure. Okay. So you, you've, You've added a little bit of intel through scouting. Now Saturday morning arrives. 
walk me through like a hypothetical morning hunt? Would you still be stalking like you like you do a lot of times now, or do you think with this situation you would instead post up in some kind of place? Like, what specifically would you do with those two hours? I think if I just had two hours, like I would just try to be. Um, so like, hopefully that Intel from driving around would give me like, okay, I, I can assume deer coming from this bedding area. Um, you know, they're feeding in this spot, they're bedding in this spot. And, you know, maybe I've learned a little bit of a pattern that way. I would just try to get in, you know, with that amount of time and stuff. I wouldn't, you know, I, I guess in general, I've, I've gotten away from using a lot of gear. So it's like, I just have that amount of time, I'd probably just slip in somewhere, set up on the ground, you know, have a really high off shot inside of 20 yards. Um, and then, you know, if the opportunity was there, I would absolutely always stop. But, you know, I guess probably what I would do is just set up, slip in, set up on the ground in the dark and, um, you know, try not to make a whole lot of noise. Like it can kind of be in and out and, you know, not have a huge impact on that area just be able to you know i guess hop in there and hopefully get get something down um you know i guess i'm always at this point at least in in this universe that i live in i'm always trying to like you know make moves on stuff if the opportunity's there but in this situation with just a short window um you know i would just have to play that by ear if something was moving and i needed to get closer absolutely would get aggressive on it but like you know i guess the the initial setup would, would be just that, like a setup probably tucked in somewhere. Um, nothing real fancy, just, you know, hopefully a high odd shot where I got deer, you know, coming in close, but, you know, also having that confidence to be in that location, just based off that Intel from driving around before work or after work or whatever it may be. Yeah. Follow up on that. Let's, let's assume that, right? You're trying to fill a freezer. So you would shoot a doe, you would shoot a year and a half old spike, whatever. And let's say yep. one of those deer uh, shows up, but out of range and you find yourself thinking, okay, I've got to put a move on these deer. Um, mm-hmm. Would you like, I don't know if you've had some experiences with this in your own life and you've noticed anything, but have you noticed anything different with how you need to, or how you can approach and try to stalk in on a mature doe versus a mature buck or something like that is there anything you're doing different thinking about different trying to be more careful about or less careful about when trying to move in closer with a deer like this um you know i think that with with does the biggest thing is is you've got um a lot of times with a mature doe you've got you know younger deer with it so if that's the case you know, it just is more eyes. Therefore that can be a little bit challenging. And, um, you know, as soon as one of those fawns picks up and gives, you know, picks its head up and gives you that alert, like, Hey, what's that? You know, usually the does right behind and starts getting real curious real quick. Um, but you know, as far as a lone deer, it's just kind of the same thing. I mean, um, you know, ideally I'd always rather be moving in on a lone deer versus a group of deer, you know, more eyes, uh, more noses, makes it more challenging for sure. But I wouldn't say there's any real difference. Um, you know, I guess, I guess maybe with the doe, I would be like more aggressive there just because it's like, typically there's more of them in the woods versus a mature buck, 
you know, but at the same time, the goal is to fill the freezer. Like, um, just, I guess, taking it, just taking it appropriate and just reading the deer, you know, if I can see a deer, that's when I feel the most confident because you can just read that body language. It's like, if it's feeding and relaxed and just browsing through the woods, moving slow, um, you know, you can keep cutting distance. Um, and then obviously if a deer is bedded in one spot and you can see it, it, it becomes really easy to read the body language because it's like, you're either good or you're not. You can tell real quick. And a lot of times if you can read the body language, it's like, there's any amount of like, like alertness to the deer. You just back off a little bit or not back off, but just slow down. Let the situation play out. Let the deer calm down and then keep making your move. So I wouldn't treat it that much different. I do think that, um, I do think that does tend to like rely on other deer more. So that's the one major difference where, you know, a mature buck bedded alone, like way off away from all the other deer, he's got to be checking himself a little bit more frequently, but at the same time, you throw a doe with a couple of fawns in there and she cares about protecting those fawns a lot. So like, she's really looking yeah. a lot. So I just, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I would just treat it pretty much the same. And like, I always think of it like this, if I'm making a move on a deer, it's like, when I'm committed to shooting that deer, I just try to put my mind in like a, a different, uh, completely different state than normal. Like, I'm not thinking about anything else other than making the perfect move. Uh, it's just like total game time, you know, focus, don't make any little mistakes. Don't break any sticks. Um, just really, really, really focus in on that. And because I think of it like this, it's like, if you're committed to doing it and you're going to make every perfect move, like there's really nothing. And I, I guess if you make every move, perfectly you don't make any noise you don't really you're, you're probably not going to spook the deer but if you start getting lazy and you start thinking oh this isn't worth it and then you bump the deer you're going to look back on that moment where you took a play off you know and you're going to get mad at yourself and i just think hey even when i start to make a move too fast i, I like check myself and remember hey you know, if you make this move too fast you're probably going to blow it and if you blow it you're going to never like let yourself you know uh I'm always just going to remember that moment and think, man, why did I just yeah. like lay off? Why did I take a play off? So. So if I were yeah. to bet you, if I were to bet you a full American quarter, would you take that? <laughs> would you take that bet that you could get this deer killed in two hours on a Saturday morning for a quarter? You know, that's a tough one. There's a lot of variables that come into play. Um, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, it's always one of those things. Like I think, I think when you set, no matter what goal you set, when you set a goal, it's like if you, if you, I guess let's put it this way. In my experience, the times when I say I'm going to go shoot a deer in, you know, X amount of time, it usually ends up being more of a challenge yeah. than I, I think. You know, you set, yeah. you set this goal and you're like, oh, I got this easy. I got this in a bag, man. I'm going to go out. And I'm going to shoot a deer. And I'm going to get meat in the freezer. Like, I'm just going to fill a tag. It's like, <laughs> like every time I say that, it ends up being more of a challenge than I think. So, um, <laughs> I 
I don't know. I'd say I'd say there's a fifty fifty chance that I'd pull it off. I don't really know. <laughs> I I've got faith. I think you'll get that twenty five cent piece. That's that's my take on it. <laughs> um so let's let's pull you back into the real universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's let's put you back into your own life and uh and Tony, where do you want to take it? Hey, can it can we stay in, in this alternate universe for a second, Mark? Oh sure. I think, well, two things. You could have given him 11 kids and made an, him an accountant, and you didn't. <laughs> you, you, went, you went really easy on him, and you, you didn't have any, like, uh, you know, there wasn't any roadblocks there. You could have went nuts. But what I what I think, I love that hypothetical because, when you, Zach, when I hear you talk about, you know, just just hunting a meat deer, let's say, it's mm-hmm. there's still so many variables and still this reluctance to just be like, you know, I got this. And I think that's an important point. We should, we should kind of break down a little bit is we give advice constantly on hunt big bucks, hunt mature bucks. And then you throw this out there. This is reality for a lot of people where, you know, killing any deer is not easy. You know, it depends where you're hunting and your experience level. And what you're really describing is the all these different things that go into just trying to find a concentration of any deer and then get in on them and get that, that bow shot. And that's like the basis for you becoming this guy who can go out and stalk bucks. And in some ways have an easier stock on them if they're loners and they're in the right spot versus those doe groups. Mm-hmm. This is, it's kind of a neat mm-hmm. thought exercise because it kind of highlights how difficult this stuff really is for us. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, just in general, um, like, yeah, we talk about big bucks, I guess, and and we don't talk about just killing deer. And uh, I think that it's one. I always, I guess, let's put it this way: I always think in my own situation, like if there's a deer that goes by in bow range, like it's a little success, you know, because there's a lot of days even when I'm looking for a big buck that I don't, you know, have the opportunity to take a shot at the doe. Even There's a lot of days I don't have deer in range. So like anytime, you know, a, I really do see it as a huge win. Anytime a deer walks past me, like, you know, a small buck, doe, whatever. I love it. Like, I, it like gets me so excited because it's just like, man, like I really did something special here because yeah fooled the deer you know i fooled the deer's nose and eyes and i guess i always just mark it as a little win i can think back to last season hunting in ohio um, in the hills of ohio like i can tell you the very few days that i had deer even in range you know like i can can remember them specifically and you know i would say it's interesting i I, I guess this is interesting in general that when you're hunting big bucks it does seem to be that like you don't actually get a ton of like other deer in range necessarily. Like I would say 50% of the deer that I got in range were, and I didn't kill any during bow season. I did end up shooting one in Ohio with a gun, but not during bow season. I would say 50% of the deer I had in range were like those or younger bucks that I chose not to shoot. But like the other 50% were some pretty nice bucks. It's just really, weird how that ends up working out so anytime i do have a deer in range it's like awesome because <laughs> <Yep. laughs> it is well, a challenge i mean it's not it's something we take for granted it's like having a wild animal 
inside of bow range, especially inside of like 20 yards. It's like quite the, uh, quite the feat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a good example of how valuable it is to learn to hunt deer first and yeah, you know, focus sure. on the big bucks later. But if you can't get there, if you can't get it, same thing happens, you know, when, when people go out West for the first time and they're going to hunt elk, you know, and they're like, Oh, you know, I just want a nice, like 275 inch, 300 inch bull. And you're like, <laughs> man, you got to get around, you got to learn to get around elk first. And that might take you 10 seasons. Like it's, oh, you yeah. know, it's, crawling before you walk type of stuff. Um, should, should I throw my first scenario at him now, Mark? Have, I mean, we, have we explored that alternate universe enough? Yeah. I mean, you did intrigue me by throwing the 11 kids in accounting and maybe marital <laughs> strife. I, I, I would like to explore that, but for the sake of Zach, I say we, we move on. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Zach, I'm sure you guys hear this and you, you've done a really good job with THP on, on expanding where you guys are traveling to and where you're filming. But I, I know I, I hear this a lot from people in the deep south. So this is kind of where this scenario comes from. So you have five days to get it done in the swamps of Louisiana on public land, starting on their October one opener. This is a two-parter. What do you look for e-scouting before you ever hit the road? And then what's the first thing you do when you show up there in person? Okay. So the very first thing, if I'm looking at the map, it's like, I don't spend, I mean, Honestly, with deer right now, what I've been doing the last couple of seasons is just mostly looking for access points to start, you know, just seeing where the road touches public land. And then I'll zoom in and out and just kind of get a read on what every access point looks like. If, it's, if there's a big pull in with a big turnaround, um, I'm less interested in that versus something where, you know, I don't see that pull off or I don't see the, the big, you know, kind of parking lot type um access point and then if there's any trails you know kind of take note of those as well but then i always just zoom out look at it big scale have those pins you know pins where i can tell there's obvious access points and then just try to find like any corner or like it may be a deep spot but it may be something that's just kind of um I don't know, maybe like a backdoor type spot. I don't really, or, you know, we always, always talk about overlooked, but like, you know, that sometimes can get confusing. It's like overlooked can look a lot of different ways. You know, an overlooked spot could be parking off the side of the road where there's not a major pull off and walking straight up a steep face to get, you know, on the backside of a hill right off the road. Um, it may look like, and, and I guess in Louisiana, it may not look like that, but maybe it's water. So maybe it's like, I can tell there's a bunch of water and it's like, yeah, it, nobody's probably walking around this big slough and just hunting, you know, ultimately 300 yards from the road or something. So I would look at it like that, try to find, um, you know, again, access points, tough to find place or, you know, tough to get to places. And then once I get there, even with five days, I would spend, you know, at least probably the first day the first full day driving around and just like hopping out and looking at stuff real quick like really just getting a gauge of what the area looks like what these access points actually look like how long does it take to drive to a spot from the nearest town um because those things have definitely an impact like even places i've you know tons of places i've hunted um different states like if you take that nearest town, 
which is kind of like probably where the, the most hunters are coming from. If you find a place on the particular piece of public land furthest from that town, if it takes, you know, if you can be to the public land in like 15 minutes versus 45 or an hour and 15 to the other side of the piece of public, you know, that's the type of stuff that um, I think does have an impact on pressure a little bit. Like that's a good start. Um, there's always a chance that you get to a piece of um, public that you thought was going to be an easy access point, but, you know, maybe it's a wet year and that swamp has swelled up and is now going across the road and nobody can drive there. Maybe the river's flooded. Um, you know, all that stuff I think is really important to just get your eyes on because if you just look at a piece of public and you're like, this is the funnel, like this is where they're going. You know, that, I mean, that may be true, but in my experience, the places that I think are going to be the best, maybe they end up being good spots. Maybe that's even where I end up shooting a deer, but like, um, a lot of times, I would say more times than that being the case, I'm driving around and I find some oddball thing that hinders people from getting into the public. And then, you know, that ends up being something that I focus more on than I hadn't anticipated. Um, so driving around looking for that type of access and everything. And then the next thing is, is just hopping. Well, the, the other thing that I do when I'm driving around is obviously look for deer and I try to get a real, this is one thing I guess I haven't mentioned a whole lot in general is like, I drive real slow. Like I'm talking slow. <laughs> I don't cover a whole bunch of ground. I, I'll literally drive with my head out the window looking for deer tracks. You know, if you're on a sand road or like down south, in my experience, you know, you have a little bit sandier of a road versus like, like um, Iowa, for example, you've got like straight up hard gravel roads, harder to see deer tracks on the road. But driving down the road, hanging my head out the window, just looking for deer tracks. It's like if there starts to be a big increase in tracks, you know, that might impact, you know, where I want to be. Um, especially, you know, if you see a big buck track, that might have an impact on where you're interested in hunting as well, or like a high density of big buck tracks, but drive really slow, look for tracks, look for trails crossing the road, and then also really break down the forest type. Like look at the difference in diversity. Like if you hit a big patch, like, like in the South, for example, a big patch of monotonous pine trees that are pretty mature, that are about, you know, probably going to be harvested for you know, like in the rotation of the pine operation down there, it's like, if they're going to be cut soon and it's not real, you know, not a whole lot of diversity going on. Like I don't necessarily anticipate deer being right in that, but if I hit a patch of uh wetland where I can just tell there's, I mean, you can just look at it and say, Oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of different plants in this. You know, I might start relating what I'm seeing in real life in this spot to like, I'll look at, where I'm at, look at it on the map and try to find something that looks similar on the map. Maybe that's harder to get to, you know, that's not right off the road. So just getting it like a plant, uh, I guess, inventory is really important to me too. Um, oak trees obviously have a big impact on, you know, where deer could be. So while I'm driving around looking at if an oak tree is hanging over the road or their acorn laying on that dirt road, you know, that. And then it's like, okay, that's a whatever oak. Then I know when I'm back in there, if I see that oak from a distance, I can assume that it's dropping acorns. You know, it's all those little things 
just trying you're almost like i think on that first day at like driving around you're just trying to gain like as much knowledge as possible and sometimes it really feels so silly where you're like looking at the most minuscule little thing like it seems goofy that you're paying attention to it like oh there's a track right here on the road but like you got to think of it you know detective style you got to find every little you know thing that could give you a clue and just relate that to where you're actually going to go hunting you know so um i think that's all that stuff important for the first day um yeah i guess i guess that maybe answers the question i don't i think that answers the question (laughs) well it does and it's what was interesting is it took you about 10 minutes to get to the deer because everything was about where are the people going to be first and you know a lot of e-scouting advice is like hey look for the funnels look for these soft edges you know look for stuff that's yeah like important to deer but if you're in a place where the hunting pressure is you know is at a saturation point none of that stuff matters and so you're you're Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, I just cut you off. That's <laughs> right, buddy. Go ahead. About that though, the other thing about that though is like if if you're so we could flip the situation and say you're a guy in in Louisiana going to you know you drew an Iowa tag or you drew a can or you drew a Kansas tag. Like if you don't understand the plants that are growing on the areas that you can hunt, and you don't understand how the deer are using. The, those plants funnels may not really matter at all like there could be the greatest funnel of all time but if it's like in a patch of trees that the deer you know if there's a bunch of walnuts in there like the deer <laughs> may not even be spending any time in there at all you know so i think i think you know you get your access points you get figure out where you think anticipate the most pressure is going to be but then you know kind of learning just about it's something different right if i was in louisiana like I've never even been to Louisiana yet. So it's like, I can make guesses on what the deer habitat, what's going to be good, but I don't know anything. Like I got to actually get there and just spend some time um, just learning about the plant life there and how the deer are interacting with that. Yep. Sorry well, yeah. <laughs> no, that's all right, buddy. Yeah. And he, you make, you make a good point there about funnels and pinch points. Cause we talk about them as if they're absolute places deer are always going to go through and right. they have to ha- they have to have a reason. Like if they don't have a reason to go from one side to the other, it doesn't matter how awesome it is. Um, I want I want to touch on one other thing that you brought up there. That you know you, you you said that you drive down the road really slowly and you're looking for tracks if the if the conditions allow for it. And that sounds like that sounds like kindergarten stuff, right? But a lot oh, of people yeah. go in with this idea that I've you know I've got all these pins dropped and I'm going to hike in here and look at this and hike in here and look at this. And what you're saying is I'm just going to be open to the fact that this gravel road might clue me into a place where these deer cross in a way that I could never see on e-scouting. And sometimes I know you guys have seen this. If you're in the right place with like patchwork public where you've got, you know, checkerboard public, private, public, private, and, you know, you might have really nice egg or feeders or something on the, on the private and then the public doesn't, you can you can cruise those section lines and see serious travel routes in the right conditions just by driving a road. And it sounds like too simple, but it works in some places. I mean, it really works. It works well to, I think, just learn so much about, I mean, different edges that deer are using. I mean, 
like you said, deer tra- transitioning from maybe they're betting on public and they're moving to private to go to a feeder or, or a pasture with, you know, a, just a different type of food source for them where they're getting some um, diversity in their diet. I mean, it's, I mean, one time we were in Alabama driving around and we found where two bucks were fighting on the road. Like it was just plain as day. Like there was definitely a buck fight right here, you know, and it's, it's, it's like, man, that tells you there's two bucks here pretty close. You know, it doesn't have to be anything like, I mean, I'm not saying that it tells you exactly where it is, but then you can kind of use your other uh, skills, like just knowing where deer bed to kind of reference that and say, okay, if there's two bucks right in this, on this section of road, like where did they come from? Where maybe, where are they maybe going? If this happened at night, you know, what time of night, how far are they from their bedding area? You know, and, and stuff like that really can help put you right in the right spot. I mean, it. I, I love that. I mean, I love driving around looking at trails crossing the road. And like, yeah, again, it does seem kind of silly, but like, I mean, it definitely can put you in the right, put you in the game at least. It can help point you in the right direction and maybe even teach you something about how the deer are interacting with the vegetation. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture 
to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store system, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I want to play this scenario out a little further because um, I like where we're going here, and I want to uh, let me let's assume that you start doing your drive, you're slow driving. And to be honest with you, Zach, I don't know if I fully believe you on this because when I envision you driving around, I envision you driving just like you start walking into the woods. Like I see you sprinting in the woods and screaming, let's hunt. Well, I could just see you get in your truck and like peeling out, like put your head out the window and scream, let's hunt, and then go 70 miles an hour down the dirt road. That's what I think actually happens. But <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. I I could actually see how you would think that, but it's funny because I get accused of driving like a grandpa all the time. And like, I always get, I actually get frustrated when my dad is driving, when we're hunting, cause I'm like, Hey, you got to slow down. I'm looking at stuff. You know, it's like pretty funny, but yeah, I can see where you think that. Yeah. Well, let, let's say you do drive slow though. And as you do that, you're, you're seeing tracks crisscrossing everywhere. You're even seeing like big tracks that make you think, Ooh, that could be a big heavy deer. Maybe you are driving at last light and there's some crop fields kind of on the edges of this marshy stuff down there and you see like good bucks Um, and just Uh the area is seemingly loaded with deer more than you could have imagined. There's a bunch of deer hanging out in this area, but you decide to poke around in the woods and you get to the first access point that you pinned. You start walking in there and you bump into another guy who's walking out to hunt a tree stand. Uh, you pivot and you go look at another spot and there's two trucks at this access point. And then you decide to pivot again. And as you're hiking into another spot, you pass by two tree stands. So there's, there's a lot of deer in the area, but you're finding people Mm -hmm. everywhere you turn. My question is, how do you navigate that situation? Do you say, all right, there's people everywhere, but there's also deer. I can work around them and figure them out. Or are you going to say, screw it. I'm finding somewhere else where there's not people all over the place. Like, I think there's a lot of deer and there's a lot of, you know, bucks, for example, like you've seen them and they're there and there's tracks everywhere. Like I'm saying you can work around them in that situation. Um, for sure. Like sometimes then that's kind of helpful, really. You know, if there's a bunch of deer, but there's a bunch of hunters, it really like limits where those deer, especially like your, your older bucks and does are going to be hanging out Um, because people are so habitual man like it's it's kind of weird like you go into certain areas of the country and everybody hunts the same way like like everybody kind of does the same thing in gun season in wisconsin you know like they they all get up in a elevated box line and they you know ride their four-wheeler to the spot like you know and if you can just kind of do something different than that it's like a lot of times you surprise the deer. So I guess what then I would do if I'm in, in this Louisiana situation and, you know, driving down the road, density's high, hunt, hunt, uh, deer, but also hunters, I would just really start focusing on some of those, like, how can I do something completely different? You know, maybe I park, you know, maybe it looks like this. Maybe I park at the access point that everybody's parking at, but then I walk two miles down the road instead of driving my vehicle down there and just hunt right off the road, but have walked, you know, 
a long way down the road. Maybe I, you know, go or, you know, get the waders out, cross, you know, like waist high water to get to a spot that otherwise is tough to get to. Um, maybe, uh, I guess just, just really trying, I guess, I guess to find the, the common theme of like, what is everybody doing? You know, are they all walking in, putting up tree stands on a specific type of dry land or are they hunting, um, is everybody hunting in the marsh, you know, whatever it may be, like just try to mix it up and do something different. Like it is really weird having traveled around to a lot of different places to see the tendencies of hunters and like, you know, you hear this and I, I mean, I remember reading articles about this like long, long ago when I was in like middle school. I remember getting a magazine, you know, it might've been like QDMA at the time or something like, or whatever it was, I guess it doesn't really matter. Just like had this magazine article and was talking about our deer patterning you. And I like at the time it, it, it made sense what the article was saying, but the more I hunt and the more I see different tendencies of hunters in a given region, the more I'm just like, these things are not even doing anything. They're not that far from you. And they're like the most tempting thing, you know, they they tempt you, especially if you got trail cameras out and you're getting pictures of these deer. It's like, they're literally living right where you're hunting. But how do you break up the, like the same exact thing that everybody's doing? How do you get into a spot that's completely different? Maybe it's not even a spot, but maybe how you approach the spot. You know, maybe there's a guy that's got a tree stand in a spot and it's just a great spot deer go through it but the deer are bedded in a position they know when he gets there you know or they hear you know they're bedded just close enough that when he climbs up the ladder stand and that ladder makes that pop they hear it and they're like okay that's our cue to not go that direction today like i think that stuff's happening like so much more than people give deer credit for um unless unless you know you you spend a bunch of time hunting, like a ton of time hunting, you, you know, you kind of overlook those things, I guess. So my best, uh, I guess my, the decision I would make at that point is if I feel like it's worth hunting, which it sounds like it is based off of the situation you've described. Like I just want to try to pattern the hunters yet again. Like yeah. how do I get to where the, the hunters are, are not. Now here's, here's an interesting situation that I think, is happening more often these days now where what you described is what someone plans on doing. They show up, they see there's hunting pressure out there and then they determine, okay, I'm going to figure out what these other people are doing and then I'll do the opposite of it. And right. Like you're saying, a lot of times the current hunters are sitting in their tree stands in certain types of places. And once you figure that out, it's pretty clear how to get around that. But let's say, when you show up at this spot and you're seeing all these deer and you're realizing there's hunters all over the place, what if you go back to the parking lot and you happen to see that there's two vehicles there in the parking lot and they both have THP stickers in the back window. And then you go to another spot and you bump into a guy and there's three buddies there. And those three guys like, dude, Zach, we love you. You know, we're doing all the same stuff you do. And you find out that there's five buddies all here hunting like you. How would you hunt around people that hunt like you do all trying to stalk one down walking around scouting everything how would you handle that 
Um, probably just, I mean, the reality is, is like, if that's the case and everybody's doing exactly the same thing as me, I mean, there is a certain point where like it's, you know, pulling out and moving to a different location is reality for me. Like I, if it gets to a point where I'm like, you know what, I'm not feeling it here. Um, just move, you know, like that's, a, that's like an easy out answer though, I guess. Um, just, <laughs> it depends too on this piece of public. And like, I try to almost always hunt an area that like prior to getting there, I feel like that's not going to be the case as far as like, there's just never going to be too many people with no matter what their ideas are, where there's not enough room to breathe, I guess, you know, and, and I'm, I guess I mean too, like, it doesn't matter to me as much. Like, I guess let's put it this way. I can guarantee if I'm going to go to Ohio, like I can tell you the places where there's too much, there's too much of exactly that, like what you described. But I can tell you, like, if I go to a place in Virginia, like there's not going to be that because it's just, there's more room. There's more, uh, there's less. I mean, honestly, people are so drawn to big bucks. It's kind of comical. Like, I don't care if there's not as many like big antlered bucks in an area. I'll just go to where there's like, you know, less deer numbers probably and uh, smaller, you know, smaller antlered deer. You know, I, I, I guess that's one of those things to me too, where I feel like it gets to a point where like, I'm not as caught up in shooting like the biggest antlered buck as much as I'm just like, I want to get it out and I want to have the type of experience where I'm kind of out there alone. I feel like, um, you know, I just have room to breathe. That's, that's what I'm attracted to. I want to adventure. I don't want to be bumping elbows with people. So like, I guess there is just a point where if that is the case, I'll just get out of there, you know, I'll just go do something else. But, um, if I don't have another option, just to answer the question, I'm just going to keep, again, or just reading what everybody's doing. Like I, you know, I'll talk with hunters, see what they're thinking, see what they're doing, kind of give them my game plan or whatever. And if it's like too much, then I'll just bounce within that piece of public to a different section where we're kind of spreading ourselves out. I do think talking with other hunters is really important to, you know, just saying, Hey, you know, like we were hunt, hoping to hunt back in here. But like, what's your game plan? You know what I mean? And then, or, or we were hoping to hunt right in this spot back here. This is where we've been going. What's your game plan? Can we work around it or should I go somewhere else? And, you know, that's ultimately like what you have to do sometimes in some situations. Yeah. And if it gets too bad, just, you know, pick up and drive. And I always have a backup plan and a backup plan, you know, I always save a bunch of maps that way. It's like, I've been in this situation a ton where I'm like, <laughs> I've like, hit a wall man it's like drop down on my knees and i pulled my phone out and i start looking at like where else can i go within this state where my tag you know where my tag is legal and i do that often so you know that's that's like kind of my final straw type deal yep. uh i'm not letting you off the hook here completely zach but i gotta ask tony a question uh what would you do in that scenario tony what if you were hunting a piece of public land and Zach or like a Zach lookalike or, or like wants to be like an acolyte of Zach shows up and a couple guys are going to start hunting the same public land that you're hunting just like Zach does. How would you well, handle that situation? 
I can tell you very specifically <laughs> that one time I was hunting public land and Zach was across the river from me and I shot a buck and got out of there. Uh, <laughs> honestly, but no, I, I take the same approach. Uh, yeah, I'm not, do- I'm not joking there, Zach. Um, I, well, you I have take to this, tell me more about that. I yeah, thought you we'll guys talk already about, talked about that. I, I we'll didn't talk realize it's a secret. After. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm the same exact. Zach's answer there is my answer. I mean, I've I've gone to places, and it, the, a good lesson there, like with what he said, is without saying it was you you can't fall in love with the idea of a spot. And you see people do this a lot when they're like, I'm going, you know, I'm going to hunt public land in this state, and it's going to be awesome. And that's the, that's the spot. Like they take this WMA or they take something they go, you know, I got all my waypoints here. I got, I got all my research, you know, dedicated to one area. Then you show up and there's people everywhere, or it just, it, it doesn't play out the way you hope. And if you don't have that backup, you're going to ride out a dead program. And so I do the same thing. I mean, I've had times where, you know, I, I, I went down to Oklahoma one time to hunt a property that was big. And I was like, this thing is going to be unreal and my buddy and i got down there and after two and a half days i was like this is terrible there's people everywhere and we can barely see a deer and but we had backup spots we drove four hours to a different area of the state and had an awesome hunt and so i think i think if you're going to do this you just have to have like zach said like what's your plan b what's your plan c and you know are you like are you of the mindset where you can just go this is not what I want out of this hunt. I need to go find something different. And can you pull up camp and go do it? Or are you going to kind of default and say, well, maybe, maybe something will show up. I mean, I, I'm a mover, man. I don't like, I don't like not enjoying my hunting. And if I'm in a position where I have no faith in my spot anymore, I don't enjoy it. And so it's like, it's worth it to burn a half a day or a day to go you know, drive somewhere new, pull up camp, scout somewhere new, and just try to get that reset moment where you can start enjoying it and get in the game again. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's huge. I mean, I, with Turkey, we do it so easily that it's like, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's, it's like almost like old news at this point. Like we pull into a place and there's people on like Turkey's a really easy one. There's a lot of, a lot of the situation you just described Mark of like, you know, people doing the same thing. And it's like, if that's the case, I'm just leaving. Like no questions asked, like not spending any amount of time on it, even if there is a bunch of turkeys. I mean, I hunted a place in West Virginia one time, but it was like, I mean, it was comical how many hunters were there. Now it was also on the flip side, the amount of turkeys was easily the most turkeys that I'd heard gobbling in one spot in the whole season. But it was like, we spent one day doing it and Ben and I and my buddies and Colin who I've hunted with at the time were like, never again. Like at least at this point in the season, like the first week of season in West Virginia, never hunting the spot again. Like no way. It doesn't matter. I'd rather hunt a place with like, you know, a tenth of the birds with than not see anybody versus hunt this place where there's like, you know, four on a tiny little ridge, but you know, also five guys going in after him. It just, it gets to a point where like, to me, that's not, that's not the experience that I want to get out of hunting is like, I don't feel like I want to have action. that's con- like super consistently. I'd rather just have, you know, an, an adventure. I love being on an adventure and being in new stuff. So, you know, it, it quickly gets to that point for me, I guess. Yeah. 
Uh, you want to throw up another situation, Tony? Sure. So, Zach, you're, you know, you've got this reputation as a guy who you stalk a lot of deer, but it's kind of a, you've kind of got this style that's sort of a mix of spot and stalk and still hunting and even posting up on the ground. It's kind of this diverse ground game approach. And so, yeah, we know that's what you like to do. That's what you're kind of wired for. So let's say you're hunting uh, Midwest or the East. Doesn't matter. Not, not a crazy, it's not Iowa whitetails. It's, it's just a decent Midwestern or Eastern state. You're in a, a, a big chunk of public. That's mostly deciduous forest. It's October 15th. Mm-hmm. A lot of the leaves are down. It's been dry for three weeks. It's super crunchy out there and you've got you know your cameraman behind you and every step you take is like a it's like stepping on potato chips do you do you ever hit a point when the conditions you know and let's say it's pretty calm too because it's warm do you ever hit a, a point like that where you're like man my preferred approach of slipping around and seeing if we can get eyes on one and crawling in just feels it feels like that's not going to happen do you do you kind of default back to the saddles then or do you just try to figure out a way to keep riding that program um i just keep riding that program but it definitely looks different i like the situation you described is exactly what happened to me last year in bow hunting in ohio um it, it was november it wasn't october but the leaves were down and like every time you stepped it was like a bomb going off it was brutal and it would it was like you know early november it was like 70 degrees every day for the whole entire like whatever seven to i think it was seven days i was there yeah brutal man like i mean so loud so hot um so dry but i mean i can i just give you like kind of that that experience and it's the same thing i would do um it's basically the same exact um, situation you just described is like what I'm doing then is you know, I'm not picking a spot even until I feel like there's a good enough sign. So I'm still cruising around moving. Um, but I'm just picking the easy, the quietest route. So like, I love to move because I'm too like anxious to just sit for too long. I just kick myself if I sit for too long, but I want to, but I will sit if I feel confident in the location, but I have to see the sign first. So for example, if I'm in like that situation that you talked about, I'm going to try to find a route because there's always a route, you know, it may not be exactly where I'm going to be still hunting along and kill a deer, but it's a, a route that I can travel and learn about that area. So for example, maybe it's a ridge top. A lot of times there's a trail on a ridge top. It may be like a, old two track or something, you know, that may be the quieter option versus being down on the bench below where I actually think the deer are going to be bedded. Um, but I can slowly move through that, change the pace of it a little bit and just read that sign. Then that's going to give me the confidence to move in tighter and get set up and actually find a ground set up. Um, another like location or route that I like to take is creek bottoms. Like I'll just get straight. If it's hot and dry, I can take my shoes off and just straight up walk down the creek. Um, that's an option. Walking right on the inside bank of a creek, you know, where there's just mud and you don't have to be on those dry leaves. But again, that's just trying to give me an idea of a spot, like finding a spot that I feel really confident in setting up in. Um, and then I still just set up on the ground and, you know, 
for me, it's just like, I don't, I, I keep trying to minimize what I take to the woods. Like I just don't like carrying stuff. And like, you know, the other alternative to that is, you know, prep stuff prior, but you know, hunting public land, you know, there's not a whole lot of prep work you can do. Um, you know, you can't really put stands up and leave them. I mean, without the risk of them getting stolen and I'm not in a place really long enough to do that anyway. So it's like, just don't like carrying stuff. Like even as easy as the saddle is to carry, like I just would prefer to not do it because I like to go out all day. I like to carry a ton of water. You know, I'm carrying three to five liters of water a day, depending on the temperature. You know, those days when it was November at 70 degrees, like we had to bring five liters of water between like, like cooking up a little freeze dried meal or something, or just drinking in general. Like you get to a point where like you need that water. So I don't want to sacrifice that to bring gear. Um, so I still want to set up on the ground. And like, the more I do it, the more I'm just like, I, I really don't need uh, a tree set up. I mean, there's really not many situations where I'm like, I can't figure this out. You learn how deer see and react to different setups enough. And it's like, you just know what you're going to get away with and what you're not going to. Yeah. There's some risk involved. Yeah. There's, you know, windows where man, the setup isn't great. The deer kind of have to come through here, but you know, I'm willing to try it versus I just don't like bringing stuff in. I don't like climbing up. I think that climbing up gives you away a lot too, where deer hear you or see you climbing a tree. <laughs> like maybe are like 150 yards. Like, what does that do for doing climbing that tree? Like I can hear him playing his day, you know? And I guess I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So therefore I don't do it. I just keep playing the ground game and then I just commit to setting up a little bit more. I find those routes where I can still hunt and scout. It doesn't have to be right through the heart of it, but it may be like, if I think, for example, there's a valley, but there's a valley and there's a bunch of finger ridges that are falling into that valley. I may walk that valley and try to find where the highest density of crossing trails is. If I find that X, then I can say, okay, I want to set up in here or I want to set up close to here. And I just commit like to getting in there really early in the morning in the dark when, you know, I'm not expecting as many deer to be in the bedding area, for example. So, um, yeah, I guess that's how I would approach it. And another thing is too, is, is seriously, if it's wet and dry, I shift to like setting up close to water, um, a lot more too, just because I kind of had a light bulb moment last year when in that situation where I was hunting um really dry stuff 70 degrees i was up in this like great tunnel and it just made sense for deer to be crossing there they could go from you know a number of bedding ridges across this ridge that was kind of in between uh more bedding ridges and they could just run up and over the saddle there was tons of um, scarlet oak acorns that were dropping but we were way up at the tip top and sitting there and i'm literally myself i'm drying out man like i'm hot just as uncomfortable and i'm like why would a deer ever in their right mind be spending any amount of time up here like down there low they can for one get shade and two they can get water and three it's been so dry that up here everything's so dried out that there's not a whole lot of diversity as far as you know vegetation goes definitely not as much as there is down that bottom and man we moved down that bottom and within an hour we had a monster come into five yards and didn't get a shot and he i guess he he got close enough that he 
caught a whiff of us and then looked at us and it was too late, but like <laughs> he just kind of caught us off guard. But being in that, being down in that position, we were in the game just by taking advantage of those conditions. And, um, you know, to be honest, I just don't, I don't think that I would ever change enough to, and I'm stubborn in that way too. I mean, I definitely am. It's like, I love when people say, you know what, man, you couldn't do that in this situation. It's like, you could, it doesn't like, why does it have to be that way? Like, why do people say it has to be, you have to do it my way. It's like, if I want to do something different, I'll just keep trying and like, I'll just keep adjusting and yeah, I'm going to fail. But that's part of the fun of hunting is to me, it's like the failure. That's what keeps me coming back. I do, you know, if every situation, it's just like, I'm just slaughtering deer. It's like, it would not be that fun. I love like <laughs> failure and just like that check, you know, it's like, Hey, maybe I don't know what I'm doing in this situation. And that's cool. How do I learn? I want to learn, you know, yeah. yep. I guess. Can, can I keep going down this road, Mark? Do it. So I love that you just said that right there about people saying there's, yeah, you know, that might work in Iowa, but it's not going to work here. I think yeah, one of whatever. the things that, it, well, I mean, it, but you hear it everywhere. We had, we all, our deer hunting difficulty bias is like our bias toward our dogs, right? Everybody has the best dog. Like you talk to somebody who owns a lab, it's the best dog ever. And the last dog was the best dog. It always, right? And then Tony, you, you talk. You always get the great, the best points, dude. You always have the best points. So you're going, <laughs> this is, this is great. Well, and it, but you brought it up and it, it reminded me that, when I started, you know, I had all these preconceived notions growing up in Minnesota hunting the way I did and then starting to expand and go to these other states and hunt public land. What I realized is everybody has a local bias that they're hunting the most difficult deer. And it kind of ties into what you said earlier when you were like, you know, people are pretty consistent across the board or at least regionally where they hunt a certain way. And you can kind of you know, some, some places you can pull up your, you know, on X and you can call your shots and say, there's going to be a tree stand there, a tree stand there, a tree stand there. And people are insanely consistent and that it, and, and, you know, habituated to their circumstances, but that works against them. Just like believing that you have the hardest deer possible, it gives you an out or, you know, if you think, well, yeah, yeah you know, those Iowa hunters, they have it easy and I live in X state and I have it hard. Well, that, that may be true, but it doesn't do you any good to focus on that. Like you still, you're right. still hunting rabbits with antlers and you can kill them in a <laughs> shitload of different ways. Like you just got to oh, yeah. get out of your own way and just go, okay, well, yeah, you know, maybe I'm not as lucky as somebody who owns a thousand acres in Southern Iowa, but I have this national forest to hunt. There's deer in there. They're killable. Or I have this, you know, grandpa's farm or whatever. And I think so much of that mentality like that just works against us so much. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really interesting to like, you know, it, it, the out thing is so true. It's just like, well, but here we are in, in this place and it's not this place. And it's like, yeah, it's not. But like, I, I there's always a local that's kicking ass out there. Like, you know, like yep. there's always a local that's doing really well because like they found a style that works for them or they just recognize what their situation is. And they, you know, they, they take advantage of it. And, like they learn, they learn what the deer are doing. They learn what the hunters are doing. And then they, you know, take advantage of those things that they've learned. Like you got to go out and fail. And I just think that that's, I don't know. It's, it's something that, we don't want failure, right? Like as hunters or just humans in general, like we don't want to show that we failed. And that's, 
while while that is true, you ha- I think I, I do believe that it's healthy to show or you know admit that you're failing and say, hey, why am I failing? Why if you are failing, why? And then what can I do to change that? And you know, you hear it all the time, and I mean, it's kind of cliche almost at this point. It's like, you know, with the rise of social media and hunters, you know, sharing <laughs> pictures of big bucks, other hunters feel discouraged when, you know, it's like, it really is becoming a cliche thing. It's like, you've read that article before you've heard that podcast, whatever it's like, but I guess it's just, who gives a shit? Like, who cares? Why do you worry about failing? Because like nine times out of 10 or way more, probably you don't kill a deer. You know, you, I, there might be, there might be, you know, it might be every third hunt, you even have a deer in range. So it's like, it doesn't matter. And why compare yourself to other hunters? Because there's no more true thing than hunting than this. Everybody's hunting situation and goals are different, period. Like what I think is, you know, what I, what is a goal to me is not a goal to you guys necessarily. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but like, who cares? To me, when I go hunting, it's me versus like, the woods and the deer. I'm just going out to be competing against them. Like they are living in their world. I'm trying to be a predator in their world and I'm trying to go in and trick them, you know? And I just think it's like, why, why care? Why compare? You know, because if, again, if you start, and it's so, it's so crazy that I have the, the, the like route to comparing you can go. Like if you're sitting comparing your, your antler score that's why i think score is so ridiculous it's like your antler score if you live in you know uh the southeast for example like if you live in north florida and you're comparing score to what guys are shooting even in tennessee like you're probably going to get discouraged and then the guy that's comparing his score in tennessee to the guys in iowa or kansas he's probably going to be disappointed Go out, set goals for yourself that you feel are realistic and just go have fun because like it's no competition. And it just is like, I don't know, it's, it's frustrating to think that it is a competition. Like, you know, and it, it doesn't matter what anybody else's goals are. Make your own, have fun. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a sport that is meant to be just like fun. <laughs> yeah. And it's an at individual point, pursuit. Age, it's fun. Yeah. Hey, uh, Mark, can I keep going? I got to keep going on this. No, you're, right? no you're fired <laughs> too much. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm, I'm down. I'm having, I'm having a blast. So let's keep doing it. So I, I want to talk about failure because, you know, you brought it up and I, I always use the example of like an over-the-counter elk hunt in Colorado, which is, you know, yeah. everybody's default elk hunt. Like if you, you know, whether we love failure, hate it or indifferent, whatever, how you feel about it. If you say, I'm going to go do that hunt you're saying almost with certainty you're going to fail as far as killing an elk. But that's that's not why you're going. You're going to elk hunt and have the experience. Like we have a harder time with whitetails in that same, you know, like getting that mindset right with whitetails. It's like so, so important to kill. And and we're like averse to this failure, but it's such a integral part of it. Like it's it's coming no matter what. And so like that example you gave, Zach, of you know, when it was super hot and you're sitting there on top and you're going, why would a deer be here? Like you're, you're hunting a place you shouldn't be hunting or a spot. And dude, I had an exact same light bulb moment 
probably like five or six years ago in Nebraska, same kind of deal. It was like 75 degrees. I'm sitting on this top in this public land that I've killed big bucks in and I'm seeing nothing. And I was just sitting there sweating my ass off and I'm going, why would a deer be here? Like they're not here, obviously. Like I'm not seeing them. They're not coming through here. And I've got this stream in the valley below me with, you know, all these nice conifers along it and this good cover. And I'm like, what, why are you sitting up here failing at this when you know, like you'd feel better down there? That's probably where they are. And I did the same thing. I went down there and I killed a buck. I didn't even have like my shirt on. I was wearing a t-shirt and hung a stand and he came <laughs> in right along the creek. I mean, it was like over and I hadn't hardly seen a deer in two days hunting. And it's like it, one of those moments where it's like, yeah, that's awesome. Cause the, the success came, but really the important part was like questioning why you're failing so bad. Like why, why are you sitting here wasting your time doing something that, you know, like if you start to question it and go, why is this not fun? Why is this not working out? You're going to make different decisions and probably move in that right direction. But it's a, it's like a hard thing to overcome sometimes. And those little yeah. epiphanies though, are what are so fun. It's, huge. it's yeah. I mean, totally. that's, that's it. It's the, the journey, the process, having those little aha moments. As soon as you start learning to appreciate that and realize like, that's really the thing we're chasing here in a lot of ways. Uh, that's, that's the ticket. Definitely. I would agree with that as well. I mean, it's like, we all want, when we go hunting, we all want like a certain thing to happen. Like that's the, the goal is like, I want this deer to walk down this trail in front of my setup or I want to find a bedded buck or whatever. And it's like when all of a sudden it does happen exactly what you want to have happen. That's when you feel like on cloud nine, you're like, man, I knew exactly what was going to happen in this situation. And like most times though, you don't, you know, and you just got to keep chipping away at it. It's like, yeah, I mean, you're gonna like hunting is like lower odds than you're, you know, you have a, a batting average, you know, you think of a good batting average being over 300 or whatever. It's like your hunting at batting average is not through over 300. Like it's mine isn't. You know what I mean? No, right. Like, more times you're going to fail. So it's just, I guess it's just one of those things. If you embrace it, you're going to have a lot better time. And then the other thing is, is like, what is failure? You know, because I always say I'd rather I'd rather be around I, I guess let's put it this way. There's a lot of hunters that have found like what works and they just keep doing the same exact thing. And those people start to get to a point where it's like, I'm not as interested in what they're doing because for their situation, I've learned or they they've they've figured that out and they just keep doing it. I'm almost well, I'm not almost, I, I enjoy having a conversation with people. Like I love talking to a guy that's only hunted a few years or, you know, just less than me in general, but is just like super curious. Like they're, they're asking questions or like, what type of tree is this? You know, what, you know, what would you do right here? Or whatever. Like asking a bunch of questions, just, you can tell they just care about it and they're thinking about it a lot. And like, if you're doing that, in my opinion, you don't, you're not failing ever. You know, if you're always asking yourself, like, why didn't that work? You know, what, I can't really figure out why that deer did that, but I'm thinking about it a lot. What do you think? You know, they want to have those conversations. They want to 
dive into like just deep thought about the situation. And then how do you ever fail? Because you're just trying to learn. And I think, you know, I think if you're trying to learn, you're never failing in hunting because it's just, you know, you can just being curious about it, man, I think it's huge and, and just caring because if you say, ah, I didn't get one, I failed and you give up. It's just like, it, it's just like if you were, if that guy was on your football team, like you don't like that guy. No. Right. It's like, if you lose a game you're, and, and that guy's like, oh man, we lost. He tucks his tail, puts his head down. It's like, Hey man, we got to get back to work. It's like we got to get back in and you know, we got this week in practice. We got to like really focus on the things that we did wrong. And then we got to get better, you know? And I think that, you know, that I just, I, I, I find myself relating sports to hunting a lot these days. Honestly, it's just, you know, having, having a positive mentality in it and, you know, just keep continuing to improve is important. Yeah. I think the two or two of the most important questions that should like always be on the tip of your tongue during hunting season is number one, why when something happens, asking yourself, like we're talking like, why did this happen? Why isn't this working? Or even why does this work? And the second question is what now? If you can, if you're always asking yourself yeah. those questions, why did this happen? Or why did that deer do that? Or why did this not work? And then what now? Okay. How do I deal with that situation? Rather than tucking your tail, rather than giving up or saying, what well, was me? It's like, okay, that thing happened. Or I learned this thing or I observed this thing. What now? How do you move forward? Like those yep. two things, constantly ask yourself those two things and keep moving forward and enjoy it. And that's, that's it. Actually, I think a thing to add to that too, is just like, really nail that like really pound the mistakes into your head like how like don't forget that thing again you know if you make a mistake try not to make it again like i can I, I'll, I'll use an example from last year is like the the, <laughs> the most bonehead mistake that haunts me and will probably haunt me for a long time is i was it was it was that time of the year in november ohio hot dry found a really good funnel had set up close to it knew there was probably a hot doe in the area just based off the, the day prior um we were basically set up right in the, the perfect spot where it was going to pinch deer down to inside of 20 yards in you know hilly terrain which isn't always always an easy thing to find but we we felt good that we were in the right spot looked down about nine o'clock the only deer we had seen all morning shooter buck cruising it was one of the bucks that we'd seen the day before he's cruising down below us um, on the bench, I don't know, 120 yards down the hill. And, you know, I, I love talking about the little things, you know, the little things that we, we do that can cost us an opportunity or, um, whatever, you know, it can, it can blow the deer or before we get a shot or, or make us miss or whatever. And one of the things that I always try to make, like do well is, be ready, you know, just like always being ready. And this deer went down below us and he had just got outside. We tried grunting to him. He didn't make any, he didn't have any reaction to it at all. And I looked at Keith who I was hunting with. I'm like, should we just try to rattle? Like, you know, I don't, I don't really want, that was like the last resort because it's like in a different situation, we just try to cut him off and try to get a different angle on him, but we couldn't move because we had too much crunchy. Um, it was just the conditions were too crunchy, too calm. 
that we didn't feel like we could ever, you know, fool him as fast as he was moving. We were never going to be able to get in front of him quiet enough without spooking him. So the last resort was, well, we'll rattle and make a bunch of noise. But when I rattled and made a bunch of noise, I, it, it works great. Keith and I were both banging about this, like thrashing in the leaves, rattling, and the deer was on us before I was even done rattling. Like I was just setting the antlers down and he's at 15 yards coming fast and he's coming, I mean, right at us. And the mistake that I made was, is there's two mistakes really breaking down the situation is I should have stopped midway through the rattling sequence to listen to see if I could hear him. Because again, the crunchy conditions, that was an advantage that we had is that we could hear a ton. So I didn't do that. But then on top of that is I had turned to face where the deer was, but in my setup, I had been facing the other way when we were just sitting there, you know, looking for deer and waiting. And my bow was on the other side of me and the deer ran up to like literally six yards and before he knew anything was up and I ruined it because I wasn't ready. And I mean, it would have been the most chip shot of all time. The thing was at point blank. And I wasn't ready and I didn't have my bow in front of me. So like, again, I kick myself. I think about it all the time. Sometimes I wake up in a cold sweat because I've been having a nightmare about it. I'm just kidding. But I, I think about that all the time. But like the, the worst thing I could do now is make that same exact mistake in the future. Now it's just like focusing on that little thing and just being like, you know, sometimes it seems it, it, uh, it seems like the most basic lesson ever, but like, make sure your bow's in front of you. Make sure you got an arrow knock. Make sure you're ready. Make sure you're ready. You know, and, and I just pound that into my brain for the future to hopefully never make that mistake again. And, you know, it's like I could powder out about it. And I, you know, I definitely do sometimes in my own head for sure. It's like, damn, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But hey, you got to just cut your loss and say, next time I'm going to do better. And the chances are, that I'm going to be in a similar situation to that again. It may, it's probably not going to look exactly the same. I mean, chances are I'm not going to be in that same, behind that same exact log on that same exact ridge, rattle into a buck with those same exact conditions, but I'll be in something similar. And just learning from that mistake is like, to me, that's what makes, to me, that is what makes somebody really a, a, a good hunter. It doesn't matter what you're shooting. It's just like, can you, look at your mistakes and say, Hey, this is what I did wrong. Here's what I'm going to change in the future. Cut my losses and move on. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's really important about that lesson too, is, you know, you talk about that buck coming to six yards and how easy the shot would have been if you'd have been ready, but everybody who bow hunts gets surprised by them. And that's when bad shots happen. So you, you didn't have the chance to get off a shot there, but you know, every bow hunter with a couple seasons under his or her belt has been out there you know, in quiet conditions or just not paying attention, you know, just got set up and then looked and that buck's walking through and it's a mad scramble. And that's when the panic sets in and that's when gut shots happen. That's when misses happen. And that's when you just fall apart, you know? So, so like you said, paying attention, if you get that, you know, 10 second lead time, or you see that movement in the brush 50 yards away versus 15, you got a lot better chance of making a good shot because you have a chance to get your shit together versus just all of a sudden having that Chinese fire drill and being in real trouble. Yeah. yeah. And where, what I, you know, looking back on that situation, what I would change exactly is, is I would just 
not turned towards the deer while rattling. I would have just stayed quartered towards my bow, rattled with my, you know, my knees still facing my bow, twisted to the left and made the noise to the left, paused mid-rattle, heard him coming, dropped the antlers, grabbed my bow, and then just, you know, I, I read antlers a lot on the ground. Like I stay low enough and I practice draw where I can stay low and, you know, knowing that the deer can't see me just based off what his, you know, I'm low enough that I can only see his antler tip and I'm just reading that. I had drawn low and then just slowly rose up and he, you know, chances are high that if I would have done all those things a little bit different, it would have been money. But like had, you know, had I been in that same situation, let's say, um, turned the wrong way rattling even if i do pause and hear him coming i'm in that situation like you said where i'm scrambling i gotta turn back around i gotta grab my bow i gotta get ready and at that point maybe he's he's too close and you know it gets it gets sloppy but like just in general i look back at that and I'm like what in the hell was i doing i mean just so sloppy like just just not good but hey you know sit and complain about it or proud about it but like the reality is next time i just gotta try to do better take advantage or you know make sure you're doing the little things pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service it's called the wellness company picture this okay you wake up you got a scratchy throat you're all congested you got a runny nose you got a cough whatever and you weigh your options like you tough it out get sick take time off work Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit. All right, it comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture 
to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store system, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. What about a slight variation on that situation that I imagine has happened to you? I know stuff like this is similar to this has happened to you, but I think a lot of other people, if they're trying this kind of thing, it would happen too. Whether you're sitting in a place like you were kind of waiting or stalking in on a spot and you get pegged by a buck that you were either moving in on or he moved in on you, he's right at the edge of your range, let's say. So he's not a chip shot, but he is hypothetically in range. He's on alert. Mm -hmm. You have your bow. You have it, an arrow knocked, but he is on alert. He knows something is kind of up. He's doing the head bob. He's curious, unsure, not quite aware, though, that he should be out of there right away. In that situation, given some of the experiences you've had, what's the best thing to do in that situation and from your perspective? Do you wait till he makes any kind of tiny little movement and then just go for the snapshot? Or are you going to wait it out and wait till he's comfortable again and starts walking away? What's the take in that situation if you could have taken a shot? Just stay calm, I think. Like, read that deer, cover your face and your eye. You know, have hopefully have you've got your face and your eyes covered as best as possible. And just stay calm. Because I've had that happen a lot, actually. Um, a buck I shot in New York totally saw me, but he didn't know what I was. Um, the buck in North Dakota that I shot last year, he saw Jake, didn't know what Jake was. Um, so I've been in that situation and the best thing, like, man, it runs through your mind every time. Should I just draw and sit up and shoot? And I don't think, I think sometimes it works. And I guess in one situation I did that, um, I did do something similar, but, but we'll, we'll kind of loop back to that. In most situations, I think deer, and again, it comes with a little bit of experience of knowing like what deer can see and what they can differentiate from like danger and just like a blob in the woods. Um, I think deer see head and shoulders. So, and face, I think face is a big one too. So like a lot of times I pull my, if a deer's closer, I know a deer's close. I really shade my eyes with my hat and basically cover half my, my eyes with my hat and or put my bow cam in front of my face because I think that they see those two predator eyes, mm -hmm. you know, looking right at them, especially they're whatever, 20, 30 yards. They're like, what is that thing? You know, that doesn't look right. And if you've ever seen a human face in the woods, sometimes it does stick out like hundreds of yards. It's just like, whoa, there's a person sitting right there. I can see their face. So covering face is, is like important. And then, I mean, I, I really do grow my hair out at this point. I mean, I grow it out cause I like it. Number one, but number two, <laughs> like it breaks up the head and shoulders, you know, like, I think that's like human outline, human standing on two legs and obviously walking across the landscape, like deer pick up on that quick, but also, um, just that head and shoulder outline is like, you know, very specific to humans. And I think they pick up on that as, you know, predator danger real quick. So, you know, if you know, like, let's say 
Oh, and movement. Movement's the other final straw. So like if a deer's locked onto you and he's head bobbing and he's at, you know, your range is 30 yards and you're like, I know he's right at 30. He's like, I know I can make that shot. He's broadside right now. And you rip the bow back. I mean, see ya later. He's, I would say nine times out of 10 running. Now, if you have a little bit of front cover, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe it's worth a shot. I'm not saying that a hundred percent of the time it does not work, but you know, if they're already pretty locked on and they're already like, you know, on max suspicion of like, is that a predator? And you blow up out of your, you know, your, your hide, they're, they're probably going to run. So in my experience, I've just been really, really patient, stayed, stayed low, looked at their, um, antlers and really just make that read, you know, once they're not looking at you to make that move. Um, so I'll use the example of New York real quick, New York. I was stalking in on a buck that was better with a doe and I was staying along a shaded, the wind was coming out of crosswind. I love a crosswind when moving in on deer, um, staying in on a shaded fence line. And as I was moving towards them, I was starting, they stood up and I knew they were bedded and I didn't know exactly. I mean, I pretty much knew exactly where, you know, within like a 10 yard circle, I knew where they were, but I was playing it slow and safe. And then they stood up and I could see the buck's antler tips. And I just started reading that. And I was moving in, moving in, moving in. And, and every step I would take, I would like pick the next step, right? I would like pick the next little patch of shadow or place also where I could get knelt down and draw my bow without getting hung up on stuff. So like really particular about where I'm making these next moves and midway through, as I'm like cutting distance, you know, really cutting some distance, he, a car like stopped or something or like revved the engine, maybe even just hit a stop sign. I don't really even know what happened, but you can hear it in, in the footage. The engine revs up deer looks at the engine or you know wherever that sound's coming from and just like freaks out and he just takes off running and he does a few bounds and he ends up landing right in front of me at like i don't know bow range you know pretty easy shot but what i had done is because i had been picking that next spot i already had my next spot picked and as soon as he started bounding i just like you know one two quick scurried right into a little patch of shade I got down and into a ball as small as I could. And I put my cam in front of my face, my hat down over my eyes. And I just was barely looking at him through my hat bill and my bow cam. And he runs like head on right at me and stops at, I don't know, let's just say 25, 30 yards. I don't know exactly how far, but I know it's really, really close. And he's locked on. Like his tail goes up. He starts like kind of walk stomping towards me. and I just waited and I, I mean, it went through my head. It's like, man, he's close. And he's, as he started walking closer, like, man, I might be able to just whip this bow back and shoot him right in the chest. And I'm like, you know what? That's never going to happen. Like never, ever going to happen. And I mean, you know, your mind's racing at this point. My heart's going through the roof. And I just remember thinking to myself, it's blown. If you move, if you move at this point, you've blown it. The only chance you have is if he circles back to that doe and starts worrying about that doe again, or worrying about some other, you know, issue that could be going on in his brain, whether it's that car or whatever, you have to wait till he looks away from you. And then you got to try to draw. So 
because I had that crosswind, it was moving from right to left. And he had to circle. If he wanted to circle me or that doe, he had to go to the left. And he just started walking and he cut back into taller grass. And again, just waiting for him to not, not see his eye. You know, I, I, I really think there's, it's kind of as simple as that. If you can't actually see their eye at all, then you're safe. But like, they'll check you too. Like what he did the first time, and I didn't draw on this, is he checked me. Like he, he, he acted like he wasn't looking, you know, and he looked to the right. And then he snapped it back to the left and he checked me and I let him have that one. And then he did it again because he started to trust the situation because he checked me and I didn't move even when he allowed himself to be vulnerable. And I just like let him have that one. And then he looked again and I drew stand really low knowing that he at this point is starting to kind of go into this ocean of grass. I drew back slowly and then he looked a third time at that doe and I literally stood all the way up and I shot him at 20 yards, just like I would shoot a 3d target in the yard. And I mean, it was, it was, it ended up just being a complete chip shot. Like he was looking the other way at 20 yards. So that's one situation. Uh, another situation is, is in Nebraska, I crawled in on a buck, um, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I guess 2018. And I was, I knew exactly where he was bedded. I had a spot picked where I thought I was going to be inside of 20 yards or right at 20 yards or whatever. And I ended up getting there and here's this buck land. I ranged him three times, 19 yards. I'm like, man, like all he's got to do is stand up. And Logan, who was the guy that was filming at the time, um, he was up on the hill and he was just barely skyline. Like, the way he had to get up with the camera, he was just barely, you know, sticking out. He, he he was wearing a ghillie suit, so he didn't look like a human, but he definitely was abnormal in that landscape. And I was wearing a ghillie suit, and I'm also just like tucked up against the, the cedar tree. I'm not perfectly covered, but I'm, you know, I know that they can't tell exactly what deer can't tell exactly what I am, and I'm watching this buck bedded. And in the meantime, a smaller buck came in and walked up to like point blank he's probably five or seven yards away on the other side of the creek and he starts looking at me and then he starts looking at logan up on the hill and he just can't really tell what we are because we're not moving neither one of us are moving and he eventually gives up on wins wins in our favor that's important to note and he eventually gives up on the situation and for some reason i almost made a bonehead mistake here as that other buck worked away i looked up at logan to make sure that he wasn't like signaling me, you know, something. I don't really even know why I cared at that point. Again, it was, it was kind of bonehead. I, for a second, actually what happened is I panicked. I was like, I hope he's got enough battery or I hope he's got enough memory in the card. And then I like, really, I thought, why does it matter at this point? But I looked up at him. It's the only movement I made since I got into the setup, you know, 20 (laughs) minutes prior. And I look up at him and I look back and the buck is standing up looking in our direction the buck that I'm trying to shoot. And it's, that was one of those situations where I knew prior, I'd visualized how he was going to stand up in that bed. I could see how his body was oriented. I knew that if he stood up and he took one step, he was going to be, you know, there wasn't going to be a lane there. And he stood up, he's looking in my direction, got a ghillie suit on. I, you know, got a pretty good amount of cover. And I thought, whatever, it's now or never. He takes one step, he's out of there. And I just like, 
pointed the, you know, I'd already had the arrow pointed right at him. And I just, you know, with as much or with as little movement as possible, I just drew the bow straight back, settled the pin and shot him and he never moved. So two kind of different situations there and two different, slightly different, you know, again, every situation being a little different. I did decide to pull the trigger there, but he wasn't as locked on. Like, I think he probably at that point was just like, huh, like that's kind of weird that something's right there. And he had not, not really put that, uh, he hadn't got fear in him yet of that might be a predator. I think he just thought, well, that's something different. And I, my movement was so minimal and I was so broken up with that ghillie suit that, um, you know, I think that I just, well, I mean, I definitely, I, I did get away with it, but not every situation I would do that. I would say most times play it safe and just wait for them. And if you're not moving, they're probably not going to run. Like it is really weird. And like we're taught, we're taught when, we first start hunting or at least a lot of us, you know, um, you know, growing up in the East and the Midwest, you're taught to get into a tree stand and, and what movement you can and can't get away with how to get, you know, the right cover for a tree stand, but we're not really taught like what deer can and can't see when you're on the ground. And we give deer too much credit because what they are really good at is skylining you in a tree. Uh, they can pick a human body out of a blob out of a tree pretty easily. But when you're on the ground and you're broken up, I mean, sometimes it can be a tuft of grass that's between you and um, the deer. And they just can't really pick up if you're not moving. But if you're moving around, you know, they can see really well. But they're, they're, their eyes are definitely different than ours. Like, they just don't see the same thing. Movement is bad. You know, having your face exposed, I think, is bad. But, like, really crazy what you can get away with um on the ground and and um, just like you kind of have to relearn what is right and wrong i guess because in a tree stand you you play the situation a little bit different because they're not looking up all the time you know but in on the ground you just have to read the deer and and um i don't know i don't know i guess it's it's I just think of it this often, like I'm surprised at what you can get away with. And my setup now sometimes are like a few years ago, I'd been like, Oh, that's a sloppy setup. That'll never work. And it's like, sometimes now I'm like, you know what? If a deer comes right from that direction, it's going to work. And I, you know, it may not work from every direction, but I feel most confident in the deer coming from that spot. If he does, you know, it'll work. And it doesn't have to be like super fancy. Sometimes it's just, just a log in front of you. Sometimes it's just a big tree in front of you. You know, you're just kind of hiding off to the right side of the tree, looking to draw around it. It just, um, I don't know, set up, set up things look a lot different. I guess I got way off track of your original. (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm loving it. And it's just got me chomping at the bit even more than I was to take off in like 10 days heading out for my first hunt of the year and uh i gotta believe tony and a whole bunch of other people listening are feeling the same way so uh you've done your job well zach <laughs> <laughs> well thanks i i just you know it's something that i got uh just extremely passionate about when i started doing this my favorite my favorite thing it really hunting deer off the ground and that style man has just like i i guess this is why i promote it so much it's like it doesn't have to be hunting off the ground it could be hunting out of a tree saddle or tree stand or 
don't know, maybe it's hunting deer off of a horse or something. I don't know, whatever, like <laughs> really make you tick. Like that, that to me is, um, you can make it so much more fun if you just kind of find a style that works for you. And I, I, I was in a rut of deer hunting, not the right type of rut. I was just like kind of doing the same old thing over and over again. And I was getting kind of tired. I, I loved it. It was always my favorite thing, but hunting off the ground has made it that much more of my favorite thing. Like it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up because this message of just, finding what you enjoy, finding where your passion is and, and chasing it regardless of what other people do or regardless of what other people say is going to work or not going to work or no matter what other people think is okay for you to shoot or not shoot. Like I think the moral yeah. of a lot of this is go back to what makes, you know, what scratches that itch for you, what gets you fired up and, and just do it shamelessly. Screw everybody else. <laughs> if it's legal yeah. and if it does it for you, enjoy the hell out of it. So, uh, yep. I'm I'm all about it. So Zach, you have made it through the what would you do gauntlet. You have survived. <laughs> You've proved yourself very worthy of the challenge. Um we got to wrap it up, but I've got one last like rapid fire round of questions for you. And uh okay. and then that'll be it. So these will be like one word answers is all we're going to give you, okay? Okay. All right, so real quick. Does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? Mm. Yes, but I don't understand it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I would say it probably has an impact, but I don't understand it. <laughs> okay. Would you take a 50-yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? Yes or no? Ooh. No. If you could only have one of these tools for us, your hunts forever, which one would you take? Rattling antlers or grunt tube? Grant tube. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads? Fixed blade. Should you stop a buck with a sound if he's walking before shooting? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's one that I could go on and on about, and I think it's very situational, but yes. Yes, okay. Um, if you could only pick one season that you were allowed to scout, which season would it be? Winter, summer, or fall? Fall. Which state has the better deer hunters, Iowa or Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. No comment. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Got to keep good graces with you. Yeah. I don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to piss off your buddies in Iowa or the locals where you grew up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd rather just, yeah, there's no, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's, yeah. It's no a comment. trick question. It's a great question. It's a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's one that you can expand on a little bit. So imagine that I am omnipotent. I have full control of everything in the world. And I'm going to take away your hunting privileges for the next 10 years. No more hunting at all. Unless, unless you kill a mature buck this year on public land, Zach. So let's say, a, a, let's say a four year old buck. You got to kill a public, a public land four year old buck this year to keep the next 10 years of hunting available to you. But here's the rub. You only get one day to do it and one spot to do it in. And since you hunt like a 
you you hunt a different way than some people, you can have like a type of spot that you want to walk around and, and check out. So give me the day you're going to pick what date you would think you've got the very best chances and then describe to me the kind of spot you would ideally want to pin your hopes on for this very high stakes hunt. Uh, like first it would be, it would be like, um, real early in the season. Let's just say I've had pretty good success on like the 5th and 6th of September. So I'll say 6th of September, um, in just any wide open country where I know there's a good water source. So like if there's water and it's like, so a river bottom, um, with hills around it and pretty open. That's where I want to be. That's, that's where I feel the most confident. Um, just where I can see a deer, um, ideally see a deer bedded. That's, that's where I feel the most confident. Like I, I would say that, yeah, seeing, seeing is, uh, really important to me. So that definitely makes me feel like I could be successful. Um, in that date, just kind of love the mentality of deer. Like it's just kind of laying around. I kind of like that. (laughs) (laughs) And if you get them in an open, open country and they're just laying around and you can see them, it's, it's nice. So that's, that's where I've had probably the best success consistently. Really. I like it. That's a super fun way to hunt. I know Tony and I both are with you on that one. So, uh, you did it, Zach. Appreciate you, uh, bearing with us through all these questions and, uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh yeah, Thanks, I enjoyed. I enjoyed it a ton. I had a blast. I uh, I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Good luck on these hunts you got coming up, and uh, we'll check in with it after September sixth and see if you killed one already. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's good. It'll be that'll be right about the time to to be see it, to you know see too because I I'm gonna go to uh, I got a New Mexico deer tag it's a it's a it's like fork antler deer so any buck you know i can shoot probably nice. gonna be mule deer out there mostly but that's that's and it's gonna be open country so we'll see fingers crossed that that uh we can pull it off so love it yeah, all right we'll get there a go best good of luck, luck to you guys too have a, good, have a good season all right thanks buddy thanks zach yeah All right, and that's a wrap. I will just remind you that if you're not already following Zach and the hunting public team, you got to check them out. They're producing some of the very best whitetail content out there. Their deer tour is kicking off in just a matter of probably days from when this episode drops. So be sure to check out the hunting public on YouTube. They're on Instagram. They're on iTunes. Basically, anywhere you want to find stuff, they've got something. So check out what Zach's doing and the whole crew. Give them, uh, give them a subscribe, watch their content, and you will not regret it. So uh, that's all I got for you today. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you being here. Best of luck with your archery practice, with your final scouting, with your trail camera pulls, whatever you're doing. Get after it. Have some fun. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready 
not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.